Welcome to the Alumni Audio Lab. This is our episode number 13. The Alumni Audio Lab is the podcast from the OEAD, which is the Austrian Agency for International Mobility and Cooperation in Education, Science and Research. My name is Doris Bauer and I talk with alumni who have studied or done research in Austria within different scholarship programs and they work now in many different disciplines. We talk about their life, their research, the background, sometimes also about current events. My guest today is Rovidat from Pakistan. He is here since 2014 And since then, you're working on your doctorate at the yeah. University of Vienna, the Department for International Development. Mm -hmm. Your topic is the socioeconomic consequences of microcredits and microfinance in Pakistan. Yes. Ravidat, thank you very much for being here, my thank guest you. today. Thank you. Thank you uh, for having me here. It's my pleasure. You started your academic life in Pakistan at the University of Agriculture in Peshawar, where you received a bachelor's and a master's yes. degree mm -hmm. in agricultural economics. Yes. And mm -hmm. you have also some quite interesting work experience. We will talk about mm -hmm. this later. Mm -hmm. Where does your interest in economics and agriculture come from? In Pakistan, I would first say something regarding the area which where I belong to. It's uh, really near to FATA, the federally administered tribal areas, which is contiguous to Afghanistan. And it's really traditional or primitive uh, area. The primitive cultures are still over there. So it's a common trend over there that when people raise their children, they pre-fit certain ideas in into their minds. For example, in grade six or grade seven, you will be trained as either you will be an engineer or a medical doctor. And that happened to me as well, not very strictly as others uh, had. But uh, with the thinking, I uh, grew up and I tried to be a medical uh, a doctor after my A secondary education, I went to a pre-medical education, which we called uh, intermediate in sciences. But after completing that, I didn't go for any preliminary tests for medical colleges because we had people in medicine, we had uh, students in um, chemistry, physics and other disciplines, non-disciplines, I would say. I found that there was no a student related to agricultural sciences. So on the basis of my own decisions, I decided to go to agricultural uh, university. I would say it was against the will of my father and my senior cousins were there. So I decided and there they had an agriculture university. We had a Bachelor of Sciences. It's a four-year program where the initial two years are allocated for general introductory subjects to students. So I learned because I had studied biological sciences, so I knew quite a number of subjects over there. For example, biology, botany, biochemistry, other number of subjects. Mathematics was there. I knew already about that somehow uh, English as a language or Pakistan studies, Islamic studies were there. So all of them I have been known to already. The only thing which I realized were there was the economics. This was the the first time I knew about economics and whenever in our, our introductory lecture, 
the teacher came he was always be like there are needs there are wants and there are resources the resources are limited wants are unlimited so that hit me quite uh, or that i found them those comments quite interesting and i decided that for my specialization after two years i will certainly go to economics and that was not pure economics that was agriculture so this is a short story behind Mm -hmm. And this was also my second question, the focus on agricultural economics. So it was economics. Yeah. You studied it just a few years ago when you studied in Pakistan. How was the situation back then for students yeah. to study? If you mean the political line order situations or environment, I started my bachelor's in Peshawar in, uh, in, the, in January 2007. And perhaps that is the period of the rise of militants generally in Pakistan, in the northwestern parts of Pakistan, and specifically in Fatah and Peshawar or most of the Pashtun-dominated regions. And the area where I have graduated from is a Pashtun-dominated capital, the Peshawar. I still remember when I used to hear every second day or every third day a bomb blast in Peshawar. Perhaps you would have heard about the universities under the attacks of militants, schools under the attacks of militants, colleges under the attacks of militants. Every day I used to receive calls from my father that be safe, don't go outside of uni your university. Uh, the situations were really tough for students like us. We had to carry on our studies in that environment. I still remember in 2009 and 2010, we have heard that some suicide bombers uh, have been gone inside the university campus. It's a big campus, the University of Peshawar's campus. It's not like here in Vienna, we have campuses here and there. And Peshawar, we have a big campus where we, we have all the departments of the university. So we, we heard that, be careful, there are some cars loaded with the bombing uh, stuff and there may be a suicide attack on any hostel so this was uh, this were these were the situations and beside these uh, sort of uh, line order situations we studied or perhaps uh, i was one of them when like uh, in 2010 we had a lot of natural <laughs> disasters for example there were floods and we had to past the rivers to reach our universities from home. So these were the tough situations we faced. In 2005, there were those hard earthquakes. So not only the imposed politi political situations were there, and it still is there, no doubt, but also some situations from nature tried to distract us from our studies. So you started your studies under very tough circumstances. Exactly. I hope it's easier here in Vienna now. It's really easier. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's a paradise for me. <laughs> yeah. Okay, then let's jump a few years to October 2014 when you came to Austria yeah. with your scholarship. Yeah. How was your start in Vienna? Yeah, you see the selection process. I, uh, I, I'm sorry if I go into a bit detail. Go in uh, detail. It was uh, not that easy for me. I gave a test. It was a graduate assessment test in 2000, at the end of 2012 when I was completing my master's. And 
fortunately i passed it with somehow good percentage and then i knew in a newspaper that the higher education commission of pakistan is going to announce a scholarship for some western developed countries i read that i didn't think that i will be one of them to be selected but still the fee to submit was very little i mean i could afford that so with my testing score and with some prerequisites proposal and other documents i applied in 2012 at the end of 2012 and then i forgot whatever i did i forgot and luckily in july 2013 by some friends i heard that i have been selected or shortlisted because when i was applying there were a lot of options for example france was there germany austria china turkey and some other countries were there did you have to choose for one yes, country yes we had to give three options three priorities i opted austria on the top and then it was germany and france was third and uh, luckily i was selected for my top priority that was like really uh, great news for me it was a night time i still remember the fasting month over there and i informed first of all my mother and she was really happy and then i also informed her that it's not that easy i still have to pass certain hurdles uh, so that was the time and after that the hec the higher education commission informed us to secure a supervision here in austria which was again a hard task for me because the internet is not that common as we have it here electricity is not that common as we it's a, there is an, an interesting story i will tell you perhaps after some time and uh, then i tell it right now if you want oh okay <laughs> so then i start searching started searching uh, universities here and professors and like every time i received a response from different professors that oh it would be great to have you my student but i'm going to retire in next year uh, i have a lot of students these sort of replies then at the end of september 30th of september was the last date and perhaps on 15 16 september i received a response from university of vienna professor karl melford uh, that oh it's nice but uh, I, and the reply was like i'm not a concerned person i'm an economic philosopher he's working in the history of economic thoughts and and he told me to it would be good if i find someone who works empirically in, in the field of economics and that was the last option with me so i expressed all of things very openly to him that i come all the way from fata to peshawar it's a capital city and it's really expensive for a student like me to come here to stay here and to write an email and then wait for that so perhaps he realized what am i saying and he told me okay send me your all documents and your thesis and then uh, things went uh, quite smoothly then he recommended a professor from the university of vienna from the department of economic and social history professor thomas ertel and then he told me to get in an interview online interview formal and informal talk with him on monday that was monday i still remember and the interesting story comes like i arranged everything over there he told me that 11 o'clock of pakistan we will be talking we will be facing each other and that was the time perhaps it still is that in 24 hours we had only 4 hours of electricity power so i had already recognized the time 
For example, on every 11 o'clock and 5 o'clock, 11 to 12, we had mm -hmm. electricity mm -hmm. and 5 to 6, we had electricity during day and night. So that was 11 o'clock. So I was happy that, okay, we, uh, I, at least I will have my computer on and my internet device working somehow. For that, I had arranged somehow internet connection in my home. So it was like 10 o'clock in the morning. I was waiting not only for Thomas Yertel, but for el electricity to come. But my, uh, my little brother, he advised me to have a generator, a power okay. generator, to be on safe side. And he was right. Because when electricity came, I received a call from Thomas Yertel. I was very happy. He started talking to me regarding my scholarship, regarding my life and my family. And he was really looking quite that he was taking interest. So after 10 to 15 minutes talk, the power, <laughs> the electricity gone. Was gone. And yeah, and that was really uh, like I cannot explain. So then we arranged to start the generator uh, and... I would not go into detail, but uh, <laughs> after five, ten minutes, we had the electricity again. And I, uh, I saw an email from Thomas Hertel that, okay, uh, if the internet connection doesn't come, these are the requirements you have to go. I again immediately called him and he was like, okay, no problem, the internet connection. And then I expressed all the story to him and he was laughing all the way <laughs> that, okay, so you are online, you are talking to me via generator, power <laughs> generator. So these are the situations which I have uh, faced over there. And finally, I went for an interview in January 2014. The Austrian professors were there for interviewing us. I still remember 14 out of 30 or somehow were selected over there. And I arrived finally after passing all the hurdles, the visa process, our app. All those process, I arrived here in October. So this is this was your question. The start was really <laughs> nice because after passing so many hurdles and seeing happiness on everyone's face back home, my mother, father, my brothers, all those will wishers that, okay, at least I made it. I am going to Austria. Um, I used to watch videos regarding Vienna, regarding Austria, the Austrian Alps. And it was like a dream come true when I arrived here. But... Again, here in Vienna, the start was really good. Everyone back there was happy that I'm here. I have good room to live. I have professors uh, to work with. But it wasn't later than a month that another natural shock happened to me. And that was really... I couldn't find anyone to share with here. I was alone. I knew only Martha Wildauer. I knew Carl Milford. I knew Thomas Ertel. Thomas was uh, in India that time. But I shared my my story with Professor Milford and he uh, told me to get back, to sit, get settled things because it was really... I, I, I don't know what to say, but Martha helped me there. So you uh, had trouble at home? Yeah, I had lost my father a month later and behind... Like you asked me about the motivation, about my economics and other things. But the only thing I would say, the, what, what was the motivation behind my education? I belong to the, the society where educa education wasn't or is not considered as a first priority or is not an important thing. So the motivation was all my father. 
he not only invested in me and in my brothers he invested in my sisters because women are not that empowered in pakistan especially in those primitive societies but i appreciate my father that two of my sisters they did their masters in psychology and urdu so he was the person who motivated me it was his choice to pursue my phd degree from from a foreign university and i did that otherwise i would have opted for an administrative job in pakistan as others uh, most of our relatives and other uh, people do but uh, my father's wish was to go abroad and to do it and it was his wish and when i was coming here that was the last time when i saw him and some drops of water in his eyes so that was i call it a shock an extreme shock because for the man for whom i was here he was no more over there so the motivation was yeah i'm sorry uh, to to talk about this i didn't want to but this was inevitable You're free to speak <laughs> Thank you. So that's all. That was my start. <coughs> okay, then maybe let's come now a little bit to the topics you're researching on already with your master thesis, but yes. also now with your PhD, microfinance and microcredits. Yes. What is it? I would start from a proverb, a general proverb from Adam Smith that money makes money. One can get much money after having a little one. but the problem is that how to get that little one microfinance is the name says it's a financial support or it's finance in a very minute a micro amount but the micro term still is not really objective term it's a subjective term for example a thousand dollar would be nothing for an, an average austrian but a thousand dollar is a huge amount in for an average pakistani or afghanistani or an average african i would say so first of all like microfinance are the financial services for the really poor people to get them include into the financial sector because it's a general view that the financial sector only belongs to somehow rich people because only they have the resources to to save their money in banking sector or financial sector so microfinance is a view or is a finance an idea which includes the poor people into the financial sectors it's not a new idea it was there in 17th century as i quoted adam smith's proverb that money makes money with a little you can have a huge amount but the problem is how to yes a little yes, at first exactly so that is a microfinance it started as a social program for yes. giving the poor but i fret a little bit and somehow uh -huh. at the road it became difficult what are the critical voices saying it was uh, like formally it was initiated by professor yunus an economist uh, from bangladesh a professor of economics at chittagong university it was uh, 1976 but the story uh, dates back uh, for example you might know about bangladesh was pakistan in 1971 until 1971 in 1971 it got liberated so dr yunus was 
before 1971, he was a Pakistani. <laughs> <laughs> so the idea uh, came from there, perhaps. In 1974, he was on a social or economic experiment uh, trip with his students uh, to some suburbs of the Bangladeshi villages. And there uh, he found that an old lady was working with bamboos and she was preparing or manufacturing some uh, some stuffs like chairs and other thing, tables yeah furnitures mm -hmm. yeah so he went to her and interviewed her that how are you doing it for whom are you doing it and she replied that i am doing it for the landlord or perhaps but not he was she was not doing it for herself and she was get paid for i would say like two times meal and some money a little money then Yunus realized that he gave about $27 as a loan to her because after the interview, he concluded that if she can have the, those bamboos and the nails and the hammer and those stuff for her own, she can earn for her own. And the story came like after one year, she returned the loan, the $27, and she was a stable woman she had a, her own shop of furniture goods and these sort of things. So this was the idea behind the microfinancing. And as he says that he believes that every human by birth is an entrepreneur. The only thing he or she lacks are the resources. The critical voice or most of the economists and anthropologists that it was a cooperative scheme. It was for the purpose of welfare, for the purpose of uh, uh, empowering poor to get them out of the poverty trap. Mm -hmm. But now the situations are, for example, in Bangladesh and in India and perhaps in Pakistan, you will see many corporate sectors uh, operating microfinance. They are doing it for the profit purposes. And it happens. Like uh, from an economist point of view, when you initiate anything and when a large number of people are going to have it, we simply call it demand. And when the demand rises, the price rises. So perhaps the idea was so strong when he established Grameen Bank and some other banks in India uh, by the other microfinance supporters that it was working or it is working perhaps. That's why most of the people, the poor people were catching over there and perhaps that was the reason that the demand went high and the corporate sector entered there, initiated some banking sectors other than the idiotic sectors. So the critical viewers, maybe they objected for that purpose, that when it was for the purpose of poverty elevation, how come a corporate sector cash it, can get profit from it? Uh, there are some stories like people doing suicides due to the uh, default from microfinancing and those are so these are the not even a single project in the world can be 100% efficient there are deficiencies there are efficiencies so apart from those 80 or 70 suicides quoted by some newspapers there are many success stories uh, behind mm -hmm. that so one cannot simply abandon a program 
So the problem was that when it became more a business with the microfinance, that the conditions got harder for the people. Exactly, so exactly. Yeah, as I said, the story of that old woman, that it looks like really simply, the Professor Yunus in this story looks simply helping her. But when it comes to the corporate sector, they only mean that I'm giving you this loan and after one year with this much interest rate, you have to pay it back. And uh, there are then different models of microfinancing. For example, there is another model. They provide loans every year, every year, and which be it becomes a huge burden. You are not following off the loan, that what is happening to the loan, how she or he, the farmer or the manufacturer is utilizing the loan. Then the situation would come that he or she will be a defaulter. Perhaps I would have uh, said this before that uh, this is a difference between microcredit and microfinance. Microcredit is simply providing loans to poor people. Microfinance is, on the other hand, uh, the idea where you provide not only the loan, there you provide small micro uh, savings, the micro insurances, and there you provide education regarding different small businesses. So. So it's more the whole package. Exactly. It's a, it's a whole package uh, of small loans. So the corporate sector then uses it for their benefits, whatever it costs. It may cost life. They don't care. Mm -hmm. You already wrote in your master thesis on microfinance. Was What was that exactly about? I did my master research on the on microfinancing, roll up microfinance or microcredit in crop productivity. It was really... On a micro level, on a village, village level, I took some samples from three villages regarding three crops. That was maize and sugarcane and tobacco. Those farmers I interviewed who had received the microfinance and then on the cost and production or cost benefit basis, it wasn't like really a good academic work but that was something i could have done in those situations and it was almost every person was doing like that and i did so how much loans for example a person had received and how did he spent that money almost all of the farmers in pakistan and especially in the area i belong from are male and then i collected data regarding the fertilizers cost, the seeds cost, the, the land preparation costs and the opportunity costs. And on the basis of those data, I analyzed the whole cost and the final return. Since I said that it wasn't that academically good work, yet uh, I ran some regression model. The final results were like, With the provision of microfinance, the farmers became able to produce more. But since the work was focused or emphasized over productivity, no significant results I had regarding productivity because it's simply with the more injection of money, you can have more return. Mm -hmm. But what happens to productivity, the mm -hmm. output mm -hmm. ratio to input? So it remained the same. And the overall results regarding productivity was insignificant. Mm -hmm. But I could have provided some really economic basis at that time, which I can have, uh, I can provide now, but mm -hmm. not at that time. And I'm exploring it a bit. But uh, here in my PhD, I've learned that micro level, village level, 
questionnaire-based, regression-based analysis are not really appreciated. Mm -hmm. Yes, because you wrote in, your ab in the abstract of your PhD thesis that most of this research addressing microcredits yes. is done on the yes. micro level, yes. but it won't give you the proper answer yes. for the whole for the big picture. Exactly. And you're now investigating the socioeconomic consequences on a macro level. On a micro, or I would say on a regional level, mm -hmm. that's uh, something I like. Why the micro level questionnaire-based, regression-based analysis are not appropriate? Because first of all, regression analysis does not tell you about the proper cause and effect relationship. To have a cause and effect relationship or for the causality, one has to have a proper theory. I didn't have any theory in my master. <laughs> That's why the questionnaire or micro-level analysis are not really appreciated because the micro-level effects cancels out on an aggregate level. I can simplify it, for example, in my master thesis and most of the micro-level uh, work on microfinance justifies that if the interest rate goes down more microfinancing or more generally more investments will be forthcoming but the problem here is that the interest rate goes down economic theory says that when people save more or the marginal when the marginal propensity to save is higher the saving rate will go down now what does it mean people save more money in banking sector the banking sector will have a lot, a lot of money. They will have more supply of money. The price, so the higher the supply, lower will be the price. Interest rate is simply the price of money, so interest rate will go down. But when savings are high, it means that consumptions are low. When I save more, I will spend less. Buy less, yeah. Yeah. So now make it on an aggregate level. It means that on an aggregate level, more people are saving more and more people are spending or consuming less, which means by spending less, which means that the aggregate demand is low. Then why would an investor invest when there is no aggregate demand? The investor means that they, he will invest or she will invest and she will produce when there for an aggregate for a high aggregate demand. When there is a low aggregate demand, why would he or she invest over there? So this is like here the aggregate effects cancels out. Or for example, if in a village there are, assume it like there are 100 people and this is just an assumption. 50 people get the micro loans and 50 do not. Now those who are the beneficiaries of microfinance loans or any loan, they are having more money, they can buy more inputs and since the demand goes up and so does the price price level for those who are having those loans they can have it they can uh, buy it but what happens to those who do not have that money so again the aggregate level or the overall effects cancels out and the overall profitability becomes zero so that's why the micro level analysis are rejected here and with the level of knowledge you have right now or research you have right now would you say that microcredits are an adequate tool against <laughs> poverty in pakistan 
And I, what do you expect to find in your research? This will be an argument or comment before my results. This is the same question I, when I presented my proposal and my thesis uh, uh, in front of Pakistan embassy and from the ambassador I received this question. But if it means uh, or if it's something related to my thesis, that's why, in fact, I am doing it. I cannot say anything. I cannot make a hunch what happens. I'm still working with my results, with my data. I'm playing with the data and I'm... This is a general claim of microfinance that it reduces poverty and it enhances economic growth. And this is the main objective of my research, to analyze these claims, these two claims of microfinance on, a, on an aggregate level. In Pakistan, it is even not possible to uh, evaluate these effects on a on a ma macro level on a national level because the microfinancing amount as compared to the total level of investment is rather low mm -hmm. and the national level effects will be like would not explain effects very clearly mm -hmm. so for that purpose i'm doing it on a meso level not on a micro level not on a macro level on a meso level and for a meso level i i have selected regions it's a bunch of districts i i have some rural districts agricultural districts and some manufacturing sector districts so i'm going to analyze it on that level. so i cannot say anything whether it does work with poverty or Or not. I will ask you again in two years. <laughs> on uh, yes, that. <laughs> yes, that's perhaps. Was this research on a macro or, as you say, meso level done in other regions before, or do we yes, have absolutely no reference? In Pakistan, this is the first time, mm -hmm. and this is the research gap uh, which I am going to fill. But in other regions, for example, in Bangladesh, in India, in Mexico, in most of the African countries, there exist studies who have analyzed the macro level or aggregate level effects of microfinance. But in Pakistan, I haven't seen a single study analyzing the effects of microfinance on a national level or on a regional level. And th there are some problems with the data I'm facing right now. On a regional level, I cannot have quite a number of uh, economic indicators I need, which I need. Where do you get the data here in Austria, the, the Pakistani data when you're here in Austria? How do you get it? Uh, um, How is it just online? Uh, I'm using, I, I have been there. Uh, there is a Pakistan Bureau of Statistics, a central statistics department of Pakistan. There is the central bank, the Pakistan, the state bank of Pakistan. I was in touch with them and they clearly told me that uh, certain economic indicators do not exist on a, a regional level because they only have the national accounts in their database, but they do not have a regional account database as Austria or other developed, developed countries have. But I'm working online. I have found almost all of the data regarding microfinance. There is a Pakistan microfinance network in Pakistan. I have found microfinance data on regional level, on district level, on provincial level. But I need certain economic indicators, for example, income levels, income per capita, the gross domestic product of a region uh, or a regional product, you can say, the investment data, capital structure data. So I need these indicators on, on a regional level. And if 
I have found somehow some indicators, but still I have to find more. And if not, I will use some proxies for that. Okay, then let's now switch the topic again and let's come to your work experience you already had before you came to Austria. Because, for example, you've been part of the parliament, the youth parliament yeah, youth Pakistan. Par yes. What is that exactly? Youth parliament in Pakistan is an initiative uh, sponsored and supported by the Danish embassy in Pakistan. It's called Denida or what I, I But uh, it's a good initiative. I was selected there in 2000, in January 2013 on interview basis. The members come in the youth parliament not on election basis, mm -hmm. but on selection of certain uh, questions. They have two manifestos. There are two parties, the conservative and the liberal parties are there. They are green and blue. The blues have more liberal views and the greens are more conservative. So on the basis of your interview, they place you into those parties. After having the selection, the members form government as does the usual parliaments. The aim of the youth parliament is to teach and to introduce and train the members regarding the legislation process regarding the democ democracy, regarding the policy making and uh, to introduce the, the students or most of the youth to real members of parliament there. And uh, they also uh, give visits, international visits, for example, to Norway, Denmark and introduce these youth parliamentarians to the Norwegian or Danish parliament, real parliamentarians. I was selected because of my somehow liberal progressive views into the blue and fortunately we formed the government. I contested it for the youth chief minister but unfortunately I couldn't got too much votes. So uh, then uh, after that I was elected or I was selected by the, the youth chief minister as the youth finance minister. So It doesn't mean that I had a lot of finances, mm -hmm. <laughs> but it was simply just how a finance minister works. How do they make policies? How do the budgets are being made and presented and certain other things? Was it also about, uh, because Pakistan, I've read, has a rather young population with an average age of 23 approximately. In Austria, yeah. it's nearly double. Yes, uh, Was it also part of this parliament to talk about the problems of young people and how to deal with these? Yes, even this youth percentage uh, has been cached in the real politics. There is a political party who took vote in the previous elections and even there again raising their voice for the youth of Pakistan and they cached it like they even... They made their government in one of the province on the basis of youth views and that they're, they're, this is the only party for the youth. It's almost 65 to 70% people are belong to uh, the youth over there. Yeah. And that's why they, they make a majority of the voters. Uh, can you repeat your question? Yes, I the question was just if you have talked in this parliament also on the problems these people are facing because there are so many young people. Yes. Because yes. the society is so young. Okay. 
Okay, yeah, we we heard that we were like apart from learning process, apart from the legislation and democracy uh, training, we were somehow the representatives of the youth over there. We represented youth, even they select students on annual basis on the members stay there in the parliament, the youth parliament for a period of one year. And they raise their voices for their uh, counterparts, for the youth. They focus on the youth issues. Even I remember that perhaps it is really imbecile, but I presented a bill over there demanding for a real youth parliament in Pakistan. I still remember uh, because I hadn't that much knowledge about the politics. That was a learning time. So... Most of the students, most of the members are students over there and they realize to work for their youth counterparts. Yeah. Before you came to Austria, you also worked at the International Development Organization for Social yes. Transformation yes. in collaboration with the Peace, Education and Development Foundation in Pakistan. Yes. This organization, I've read the website, is working on promoting positive changes, especially for the most vulnerable groups in the society. Exactly, yeah. Which yeah. are these most vulnerable groups in Pakistan? I have worked as a researcher with uh, certain, not only this one, but with there was Dost International was there, PEED, Pakistan, Peace and, and Development uh, uh, Education I worked as a researcher with those groups, as a monitoring officer with the PEED and those international. The vulnerable groups are, I would say, most of those families, most of those people living in federally administered tribal areas because it has been regarded in international newspapers or international news channels, you will see as a safe heaven for the terrorists like apart from declaring those people as are uh, uh, that region as a safe haven one has to go deep like what's wrong with those people that they are so vulnerable are mm. uh, they are so prone to militancy so i being a researcher had some interviews with some students from religious schools from madrasas and some other villagers over there and it was a qualitative questionnaire on the basis of their questionnaires like there were certain questions like how do you feel as a Pashtun are you a proud Pashtun how do you feel as a Muslim are you a proud Muslim or how do you feel about other people other human of the world what is your favorite country internationally how do you feel about the West, for example. So these were the questions which were used as indicators. When I quantified those uh, data, I saw that most of the madrasa students and most of the, like, the uneducated youth, their views were, for example, they declared Turkey or Saudi Arabia as their ideal. The educated people, are. there were two females were there uh, in my sample. They preferred France and Germany as their ideal countries regarding the pure nationalist or there were views regarding the fascist views like I am a proud Pashtun there is no other nationality as good as we are 
I'm a proud Pakistani, the pure chauvinist approach. But I wasn't doing that for myself, for my own purpose. I was doing that for certain research groups. Yeah. And what did what did you do with the findings of this research? Perhaps I I don't know. Perhaps it was a, a PhD or I don't know. But those international works mostly for research purposes. Now I'm not clear whether the research purpose is for. It's research is research. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I cannot tell about because to, to it's apologize. almost five to six years I have yeah, been sure. there, uh, so okay. I haven't reviewed those things. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm so sorry. It's no problem. We don't okay. have to, to to be sorry. I have two more questions. Mm -hmm. One is about the language in Pakistan because I've read you've more than 50 languages, 15, yeah. not 15. Yeah. Some of them are primarily spoken, some yes. are spoken and written. And yes. official languages mm -hmm. are Urdu, Urdu and yeah. English because yes. it was a British colony. Yes. Your mother tongue is Pashto. You've Pashto, said it yes. a few times already. Exactly. Yeah. Is this characteristic for the region you come from? A, wh where is this language coming from? Uh, Let's uh, ask it like that. <laughs> uh, which language? Uh, Pashto, Pashto. Your, your, yeah. the language, your okay. mother tongue. Yeah. So, uh, as you have said, the official or the national language of Pakistan is uh, Urdu. And uh, despite the fact that Urdu does not belong to any person in Pakistan, nobody's, nobody owns Urdu. Mm -hmm. There are Punjabis, there are Pashtuns, Balochis, Sindhis, Saraikis, mm -hmm. but there are no Urdu. Like, Urdu okay. doesn't belong to but anybody. Where does Urdu come from? Come Urdu, from? The, the origin of Urdu, as far as I know, is from Lucknow, India. This is the origin. And the Pakistani claim is that we have Urdu as a national language because it is the language of neither of Pakistani. If they had Punjabi as their national language, there, there, then there will be ethnic or uh, problems, Conflict. for uh, conflicts, mm -hmm. for example. Uh, Pakistan is a multinational country. It's, uh, it claims to be state nation rather than a nation state. Mm -hmm. There exist problems nowadays. If you want, we can talk about that. But since you have said that, uh, these are the last two questions. And apart from Urdu, English is an official language. People speak English in their offices. Interviews are mostly in English due mm -hmm. to the British colonization. Mm -hmm. My um, is, sorry, a question. Urdu is, it, for example, the TV program and the radio program, yes. is it in Urdu and English or? No, the Pakistani TV channel, PTV, they call it. It is purely in Urdu. There are English news, but it's not all the way English. And the private channels, they prefer Urdu. But uh, there is a strong influence on the Pakistani media of Punjabi since they are in majority mm -hmm. and the, the minorities claim that Pakistan is purely for the Punjabis. They have mm -hmm. their cultural influences, their linguistic influences on every aspect of Pakistan. So by saying physically you will see that the news channels and uh, TV channels are working in Urdu but mostly the songs that the serials the movies will be influenced by the Punjabi culture you will see it and English you will see some programs in English but it's not all the time in English only the official language for example in offices the letters the education you can say or the testing system they are in People love to speak English, mm -hmm. especially the elite class. Yeah. So, does anyone understand Urdu? 
Urdu? Yes. Yes. It's it, everyone understands yeah, it. Not everyone, but, but uh, most mm, of the people. Those educated people and mm. those who are attached to media, mm. I would say like I cannot uh, express in figures, but mm. all of the Punjabis can speak and can understand Urdu because Urdu is somehow related to Punjabi. regarding the sindhis balochis and pashtuns i'm not sure because my mother personally she's uneducated she neither can speak nor can write urdu so it depends on your attachment with books or your education or if you are not educated if you have attachment with media you can somehow speak it or mm-hmm. understand urdu Okay, we're coming to my last question because we all. But uh, have I haven't said hour. about Pashto. You Pashto. haven't said about Pashto. That's yeah. right. This okay. is my mother uh, mother language. Pashtuns are like basically originally they're from Afghanistan. Even the part where I belong from, uh, the federally administered tribal areas, was a part of Afghanistan. Even it still is not recognized as a part of Pakistan by a, even in United Nation. There is a different line, which was a temporary line drawn by the British colonizers in 1892 until 19. It was a hundred-year contract, and the contract is finished. The Afghanistan. is claiming their part so the uh, i i don't want to go into detail that this is really a political issue related to most of the pakistani government uh, pakistani state and afghani state but the language pashto belongs to afghans and below the umbrella of afghan there are pashtuns hazaras tajik uzbek okay now i'm coming to my last question mm-hmm. It's the same question all the time. What are your plans for the near future or the not so near future? <laughs> Regarding the near future, I'm working, I'm studying here on the on a scholarship program by Pakistan, and we are in a contract like any scholarship holder from Higher Education Pakistan uh, Education Commission of Pakistan. The those are in a contract with them that after completion of PhDs. we'll have to go back and we have to serve pakistani institutions for at least 5 years mm-hmm. so these are these are the near future plans when i complete my doctoral studies i will be in pakistan for somehow 5 years otherwise if this wasn't the case if i would not have been in a contract with the pakistani government i would love to stay here i would have loved to work here because the situations as i i have told you since 2006 until even now the situations are really worse there is no certainty of life you cannot say if you express yourself with these liberal views or progressive views in any near future you will be uh, so these are the things uh, i have plans to go back to serve pakistan because they have invested in me i hope i will complete my doctoral studies here and will go back and perhaps after 5 years i will think Thank about us, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. okay i wish you good luck for your Thank doctoral you. studies and with your timetable that everything works like it should thank you ravidat uh, thank you very much for being here today thank you very much for having me here thank you bye alumni audio lab